It's really what every person does when they sin. God says to do this, but no, I'm going to do what I want to do instead. So when Adam first did it, that was the start of the problem. Man was now in charge of the earth, but was not giving the glory to God. He was keeping the glory to himself. In a nutshell, this is the state of the world as we know it. The world does not now seek to glorify God. All the uh, powers of this world do not give their glory to God, but they attempt to keep the glory to themselves. That is how the world exists around us. It's the world that we live in today, and it's in need of repair. It's in need of fixing, in case you haven't noticed. Now, over the last several lessons in our study of Daniel, we've been studying this vision that Daniel has had while he was in bed one night. In this vision, what we're seeing, what Daniel saw, are the four kingdoms that will rule over the earth before God fixes this sin situation. Before God takes back his creation, before God redeems not only his people, his chosen nation, but also the entire world, the entire creation. And that's what all of history is leading towards. That's where God's plan finally culminates and is fulfilled. I think at times as believers, we miss this important lesson. We focus on the cross of Christ but don't pay proper attention to the result that God accomplished and is accomplishing through the cross of Christ. We all understand the crucifixion. We understand the burial and the resurrection. We understand that we need to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in what Christ did for us on the cross. But if that is all that we focus on, then we miss what that was all about. Jesus Christ came to earth to die for our sins so that we would spend all eternity in glory and live in order to glorify him. And that glory in which we will spend eternity someday is this final kingdom that we are presented with right here in Daniel chapter 7. That's what this vision is taking us to. For those of us, as an example of this, for those of us who are married, I'll bet we all remember our wedding days, right? Some maybe remember them better than others. For some of us, it was longer ago than it was for others. But for your specific wedding day, you plan on that for months. We look forward to that specific time when we get married. But then the day comes, and guess what? We get married, right? Now we're married. Now, hopefully it was a joyous day. Hopefully it was a special day. It was a day that we look back on with fond memories, right? And and what do we do every year? We celebrate that day, right? Hopefully. Hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble. We, We celebrate, we celebrate our anniversary of that day. But what we don't do, at least I hope we don't do, is sit around and think about our wedding day, look at pictures that remind us of our wedding day, without fulfilling any other responsibilities that we now have towards our spouse. And why don't we do that? Because the entire point of having that wedding was the marriage, right? Now that a couple is married, they are to what? They are to live as a married couple. There are certain roles and responsibilities that we need to fulfill towards one another in our marriage. All of that excitement that we had towards the wedding ceremony itself now ought to be lived out within the confines of marriage itself, that life that we live as a married couple. Well, really, it's the same way with the gospel. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection were vitally important, the most important event the world has ever known. But we need to keep in mind that that was the beginning, not the end. The event gives way to something greater, to an entire process that has been set in motion for the restoration of all things, to the time when the earth is functioning as it was created to function, to fully and completely give glory to God in every possible way. And that's what it's all about, to glorify God, for us to glorify him today in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, 
glorify him by sharing the message of the gospel with others so that they might glorify him as well? Not so that they might just be saved from hell, but so that God will be glorified. And ultimately, so that he is glorified for all eternity, because he alone is worthy of all glory. And this is why it's important for us to study these end times events, because this is what it's all about. This is where it's all going. Studying God's words, but never bothering to try to figure out the end times events, the plans that he has towards the end is like practicing for a sport, but never bothering to show up for the games. Or it's like paying to get into a movie and going up to the counter and buying your popcorn, but never actually bothering to go in and sit in the theater to watch the movie. Or it's like reading your way through an entire book and then right before you get to the last chapter, you put the book away back on your shelf. In fact, it's exactly like not reading the last chapter of a book because the kingdom of God is the last chapter of God's book. We have to study this because this is where God is taking us. This is where we are going. We are going to bring glory to God. All creation will glorify God. All these nations that we've been looking at as we've studied through chapter 7, they lived to glorify themselves. That's one of the reasons that they're presented as beasts here. And the last one that we looked at, the Roman Empire, And the Antichrist that will emerge from that Roman Empire will be the worst one of these, of all of them. Remember, we looked at the Antichrist in our last study, if you were here for our last study. The beast, the man of lawlessness, the willful king, the lawless one, the son of destruction. He's known by many names throughout Scripture. But probably the most appropriate or the most descriptive is the Antichrist. Because he's going to directly oppose the rule of Christ. He's going to be the last ruler of the last earthly kingdom before Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth. A kingdom that will never be destroyed and that will never end. And in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is designated as the little horn, which we saw in verse 8. Read with verse 8 with me. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So out of the ten-nation confederacy of the revived Roman Empire, and if that statement confuses you, you can ask me about it later, or I can get you the notes from our previous lessons. But out of these ten nations, another king will arise that will end up pushing out three of the others. And he will take all that authority for himself. And we saw several things about this king, this little horn, last time in our last study. He will have great supernatural intelligence. He will be a very smart man. He will be a political genius. He will be a magnificent orator. He will unify the nations against a common enemy, which will be against God and all those that follow after him. He will focus everyone's attention against God and unify them in that respect. And in the course of declaring God public enemy number one, he will launch a massive persecution against all those who follow him on earth which at this point in time will primarily be those that are saved out of the nation of Israel. And we looked at Matthew 24 in our last study, where among other things Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verses 20 and 21, but pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And what Jesus is talking about here is the flight of the Jews from the persecution of the Antichrist who is leading the world at this time. And this great tribulation is going to be focused on the Jews, on the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And it will be the most intense persecution 
that has ever taken place. In coming lessons, we're going to see the persecution that Israel had to go under, um, under one Greek leader. Uh, we'll see that when we get to the next chapter. In more recent history, we think of the suffering that the Jews had to go through in Nazi Germany and the persecution that they will have to endure under the Antichrist will be far greater than either one of those things that they endured in their history. Antichrist will be at war with God during this time. But what he won't understand or will refuse to understand is that you cannot win a war against God. God may allow some small victories in smaller battles from time to time, but they will not win the war. And that's what we're going to see as we close out this chapter. Now, in our study this morning, we're really going to see the events that immediately precede the coming of the kingdom of Christ. In order for the kingdom to be established, the old kingdoms must be taken out of the way. For God to set up his kingdom, his this fifth and final kingdom that we're seeing, kingdom number four, must first come to an end. And what we're going to see today, at, uh, as we look at today's verses, is the downfall of Antichrist and really the end of the world's dominion over the earth, which will pave the way for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. So today we're going to talk a little bit about judgment. So look with me at verse 9. This is in the vision immediately after Daniel sees the little horn speaking great boasts. And it says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now, we read this, and we think, if we remember from the previous studies, where we were at in the previous studies, we think, where are we here? We have to ask that question. Because in the previous studies, he was by the sea, right? He was seeing these beasts come up out of the sea. And so you see this scene here, and it's almost as if Daniel has lost his way, almost like Daniel is seeing a completely different dream here. But what's going on here now is this, there's a change of scenery. There's a change in the scene. The scene shifts from the earth to really something that's going on in heaven. At least that's where these events here are going to take place. It's entirely possible that Daniel is seeing all of this together in some way, because it's a dream. I'm always fascinated by dreams, right? I've had dreams before where I've gone from being in the dining room of a restaurant to being in the cabin of an airplane, right? And somehow it just makes sense. Somehow there's just, there's no problem there, right? I get up from my dining room table and I'm walking through the cabin of an airplane. How does that work? I don't know. It's a dream. Strange things happen in dreams, right? And we don't bat an eye when they're in the dream. Well, there may be some certain amount of dream logic here as well. Daniel is now just seeing a scene that has shifted to what will take place in heaven. But in his mind, it's all part of the same thing. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Daniel is intently staring at this great vision, this magnificent and horrible picture that he has, and he sees these thrones that are now being set up. And one called the Ancient of Days taking his seat on the throne. And he's taking his seat on the throne or thrones that we see mentioned here. Well, who are we talking about? Who is the Ancient of Days? Well, we're going to see that the Ancient of Days, this is God the Father. The name simply means the Old One, a reference to the eternality of God. Now, some say that this is Christ, but we're going to see that there is an interaction between the Ancient of Days and the Son who will receive the kingdom. So I would say that this can't be Christ himself. This has to be God the Father. But it's God the Father, and this is how this is widely understood as well. But Daniel is seeing a scene where God the Father is taking his seat on the throne. Now, this is not the only place where we see this scene in Scripture. 
And Daniel is not the only godly man who has the privilege of witnessing this. So turn with me over to the book of Revelation, and you might want to keep a marker in Revelation. Fortunately, Revelation is not a hard book to find, right, since it's the very last book. But Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going right now. But we're going to be doing some Bible drills today, so just so you're aware of that. But in Revelation, of course, the Apostle John has the privilege of witnessing some of the same things that Daniel got to see. But, of course, John gets to see more detail of a lot of these things. Now, if you look at verse 1 of Revelation 4, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So here in John's vision, and he's going up to look at what the angel has to show him in heaven. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting... And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So what do we have here? We have a throne with one sitting on it. This is one who is obviously important, one who is obviously greatly exalted. Keep that in mind for a second. Look at verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now we see more thrones with more on them. Now, what did we see back when we were in Daniel 7-9? It said thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. There were many thrones mentioned in Daniel 7, and the Ancient of Days was in an obvious place of honor among the thrones. So John and Daniel were really seeing the same vision. These were seeing the same scene. Now, some question whether Daniel was actually seeing these 24 thrones that John mentions in Revelation chapter 4. Or possibly seeing thrones for both the Father and the Son, or maybe even the word for thrones. Uh, It was a plural word for thrones, was a reference to the thrones in the Arab world that consisted of pillows. And therefore, it's really only one throne, but there are many pillows seated around that comprised his one throne. But I believe that he was seeing the 24 thrones because of this parallel passage here in Revelation 4. But when, when Daniel saw them, there wasn't the same significance on the other thrones yet. Daniel didn't have the insight into the 24 rulers, the 24 and the crowns and all that. He just knew that it was the Ancient of Days and more thrones around him. There was no definition given yet for why they're there. But the main thing to note here is that, the, is that this is God the Father sitting here at the center of attention as the focus of all the glory. Now, how do we know yet that this is God the Father? How can we be sure? I've mentioned that before, but how can we be sure, even in Revelation 4, that this is God the Father? Well, if you're still in Revelation 4, look down at verse 8. In the preceding verses, we're introduced to these four creatures that surround the throne of the one. Then we read in verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created." Now, who is this that's sitting on this throne? Is there any doubt that this is God the Father? This is the Almighty God, the only one to whom all glory and honor belongs to all eternity. What did they say all day and all night? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In other words, he is eternal. He is truly 
the ancient of days. Daniel is seeing the throne room scene of God, the Father, sitting on his glorious throne. Back in Daniel 7, he describes him with these words. He says, his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. These are in reference to his purity and his righteousness. What we're going to see here is that he is taking his seat to declare judgment. And as the judge, it's clear that he is untouched by sin and unrighteousness. He is worthy to establish judgment on the earth and upon those living within it. And that picture continues with the description of his throne, where it says his throne was ablaze with flames, Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Fire is symbolic. It's a symbolic, uh, it's a symbol of his judgment. God told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, Fear the Lord, your God is a consuming fire. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And the fire aspect is obviously meant to denote a certainty of judgment there. Psalm 97, the first three verses of Psalm 97 say, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. So the fire theme here is significant with regard to the judgment that is about to take place. There is a blazing scene of fire here. There's fire everywhere in this scene. The throne was on fire. The wheels of the throne were on fire. There was a river of fire coming out of the throne. There's a lot of fire here. And you know, we don't usually associate heaven where God sits with fire, do we? What do we usually associate with fire? We usually associate hell with fire, don't we? Well, what is hell? Why is there fire in hell? Because it's a place of judgment, right? You see the consistent theme here. There is certain judgment that is about to take place in this scene. And there are certainly a lot of attendance to this proceeding as well, as we see next, it says, Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. This is a grand scene. Thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000 sitting here, all standing before him, all attending to him. These are the angels, these are the saints. There are, there's a multitude of people, of, of creatures here, if you will. They make up this courtroom. They are not the ones participating in the judging. The judging is for God alone, but they are present here for the court. The court sat and the books were opened and the sentencing here is about to begin. Now there's a lot of speculation on what judgment this is talking about. There are different judgments talked about within scripture. Is this a depiction of the final war against the earth which... Uh, when Christ first returns, the end of the tribulation? Or is this the judgment of the nations as seen in Matthew chapter 25? Or is this the great white throne judgment that takes place at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom? There are a lot of different opinions as to what is actually being seen here. And so when we think of all those and we ask the question, which judgment is this? Is it this one, that one, or the other one? then I would say yes. I think what's in view here really encompasses all of those to a certain extent. However, the possible exception to that would be the great white throne judgment because the timing elements of the great white throne judgment are a little off with this. But we'll see that there are even some elements to that judgment that seem to make sense with what Daniel is seeing here. Keep in mind, this is the first time that we're seeing the judgments of the last days. The first look that God has given with regard to what takes place at the end of the great tribulation. In fact, we know that these things take place at the end of the great tribulation, but here in Daniel 7, we don't even know anything about a great tribulation yet. That hasn't been revealed yet. So I think what we're seeing here is this basic revelation from God with 
Yes, the world will be judged. They will come under the judgment of God. And the details of when and how that take place is yet to be revealed at the time that Daniel was seeing all of this. And that judgment will take place over different phases at different times. So the judgment itself, which one or ones this specifically refers to, I don't think at this point in time is nearly as important at this stage as the simple acknowledgement of the fact that there will be judgment. And here God the Father is poised to carry that judgment out. Now having said that, what I want to do with our time this morning, the rest of our time this morning, is I want to take a look with you at each of these judgments to see what is involved with them. Because I think they're important for us to talk about what this judgment is and how this judgment is going to take place so that we get a good picture of how the world is going to come to its final end. How is God going to bring all of this about? But before we get to that, I want to show you something about the way in which God is going to be the judge because I think sometimes this can be confusing, sometimes even in my own mind. So turn with me, first of all, over to the Gospel of John. Judgment is reserved for God the Father. We're going to go to John 5. Judgment is reserved for God the Father, but Scripture also indicates that God the Son is the one to whom judgment has been given. So how does this work together? We see this in John 5. Look down in verse 21 of John chapter 5. Jesus here says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son, has, uh, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Jews saw all judgment belonging to God the Father. But here, for the first time, Jesus reveals that he is actually the person of the Trinity through which God is going to work in judgment. He then says down in verse 30, which gives us a clue as to how this all works, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the judgment of the Son is not independent of the Father. In fact, it is a direct reflection of the will of God the Father. So by seeing the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne in judgment, and then seeing that judgment belongs to the Son, we have to keep in mind there's no conflict here, right? This is one of the reasons why the Jews saw God the Father as the one that would judge, because they just knew God the Father sitting on the throne in judgment. But because God is one, the will of the one is the will of the other, right? The will of the Father and the will of the Son are together. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. We see a very familiar picture here, right? I mean, because um, here we're going to see Christ. We're going to see God the Son. And once again, we're seeing John's vision in Revelation 1. If you look down in verse 13... It says, in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. John is seeing Jesus Christ here, the Son. And look at what his appearance is like in verse 14. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And this should sound familiar to us, because if we're paying attention to Daniel chapter 7, this sounds a lot like the picture of the Ancient of Days. He is not the Ancient of Days, I would say. In the strictest sense, this isn't the same scene, but he is God. And he has the same characteristics that we saw of God the Father. God the Father is pure and righteous. God the Son is pure and righteous. These are depictions of both the Father and the Son that are reminiscent of one another. So God the Father sits in judgment over the nations. God the Son is the one to whom that judgment has been given. God is the judge. Now, do I understand the complete function and inner workings of the Trinity and how this is all going to work together? No, 
I can't say that I understand every aspect of that. But I know that nothing is lost here, and there is no conflict. God is the judge, whether it's Daniel seeing the Father sitting on the throne or John seeing the Son amongst the lampstands. God is the judge of the world, and they're working in concert with one another. And I bring this up because in the passages we're going to see here, we will see both the Father and the Son sitting in judgment. And I want you to realize that there's no conflict in these passages here because one might mention the Father, one might mention the Son, but it is God who is passing judgment. Now, first off, back in Daniel 7, let's take a look at verses 11 to 12 to see the direct result of this judgment on the beasts that Daniel has been seeing that we've been discussing over our last several lessons. In these next verses, we turn our attention back to earth and the scene that's there on the earth, because it's on the earth that this judgment is actually going to be taking place. So look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And this is the little horn, the Antichrist. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So we've turned our attention back to the beast, the little horn who has been making boasts against God, who has set himself up as God and is leading this great persecution against the people of God. Because that's where we're going. In verse 21, he says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. The Antichrist at this point in the vision is waging war with the saints. And so now we see the end result of this. Notice, well, notice there's no fanfare here. There is no great battle scene presented here. What happens? It says the beast was slain, its body destroyed, and given to the burning fire. It's short and sweet. Keep in mind, the beast here referred to is the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. But who will be at the head of the Roman Empire at this point in time? Who will be leading this empire with absolute authority? The Antichrist is leading the Roman Empire. Now, he is seen as one with this nation. And that is further personified in Revelation 13, which we won't take the time to go there now. Um, But we've gone there a couple of times over our last lessons. But we will also see this in the interpretation of this portion of the vision. Look down at verse 24. It says, and as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So this is the Antichrist. This is the little horn that's in view here. Um, verse 25 says, and he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. We saw that one last time. Verse 26 says, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. When it talks about the beast being destroyed in verse 11, the ultimate realization of that is in the destruction of the Antichrist. Where, uh, when he is gone, the Roman Empire is no more. All of its power has been taken away. What is the method of its judgment? Burning fire, it says. Just like we saw encompassing the throne of God, he is burned up. Now, turn with me over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we see the time when Jesus Christ returns to earth and this judgment will actually take place. Once again, in this vision, Daniel doesn't have all these details, so we're... we're We're going beyond what Daniel was seeing here. When Revelation 19, starting verse 1, it says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. And then they give examples of his judgment upon the false religious system, known as the harlot. Well, here comes another of God's judgments. Look down at verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a white robe, uh, I'm sorry, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here is the return of Christ, the final return at the end of the tribulation period. The time that we just saw where the Antichrist was leading the world in overpowering and wearing down the saints of God. Jesus Christ is returning to earth on his horse and he's prepared for action. He is ready to take back the world, take back his creation. Now look at verse 19. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So here is the great opposition, right? Here's the battle scene that that we all expect to see. The beast and the armies of the earth assembled to wage war against him. You have a massive battlefield with a massive number of warriors waiting to fight. But there's one problem. They're all assembled to wage war but there's no war. Look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is what happens. There's no war This is a slaughter. There are no tactics and battle plans here. There is no Rocky Balboa moment where it looks like the Antichrist might win before Jesus rallies the troops and takes everyone. No, none of that happens. This is a grade school flag football team standing out in the middle of Arrowhead Stadium waiting to play against the Kansas City Chiefs. There's no question of who wins this battle, and it's not even a battle. There's no contest. This is judgment, pure and simple. Note what happens to the beast in verse 20. He's thrown alive, it says, into the lake of fire. What did we see in Daniel 7.11? The beast was given to the burning fire. Now there it says the beast was slain. But here it says the beast is thrown alive. So which is it? Why does one say he's slain and the other one says he's thrown alive? Well, two things to say about that. The first, everyone is going to live forever, either in glory or in eternal torment. Just because the beast is slain does not mean that he will escape the eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So being thrown alive is a reference to his eternal torment. The second thing to say The other thing to note is that in Daniel 7, he's slain and then given to the fire. This is obviously a reference to his eternal judgment as well. Not necessarily a reference to how he dies. Remember, the fire is a picture of judgment. There's there's not much judgment if a person isn't able to be alive when thrown into their judgment. So really, there's no conflict between these two. Since in both cases, the fire is really the eternal state of judgment for them, which he will enter into and live forever within after he dies. But the judgment doesn't end with just the beast. Look at verse 21 again. It says, And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. These are the rest that were assembled with the beast, the rest of the armies and the nations, those that followed him in this ill-advised battle. And another thing to mention about this is that this is a picture of Christ being followed by others on horses, but you notice it's not a battle of everyone. It says there in verse 21, they were killed 
with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. The armies aren't killing the other armies here. This is Christ judging the nations. All that happens is from Jesus alone. They are destroyed. There's nothing but scraps left for the birds here. Now turn back with me to Daniel 7. And we'll see how this flows then into verse 12 in Daniel 7. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. The rest of the beasts, these are still around in Daniel's dream. Remember, this is the beasts here are referring to the four that came out of the ocean. Because when, so they're still around, because when each nation was overtaken by the next, they were not destroyed completely, but they were assimilated into the next nation. Which is, again, if you remember the picture from Revelation 13 from a few lessons ago, why John saw the fourth beast as having characteristics of the previous three beasts. But they are all still around because after the power is taken away from the beast, there are still the rest of the Gentile nations that must be dealt with. And that judgment is seen in Matthew 25. And we'll look at this briefly. Um, we won't get to see all of it for time of... Hopefully, Josh will get to Matthew 25 in a couple of months, so we'll get to see it in detail there. But if you turn over to Matthew 25, I think we have time to go there. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about his return in glory. And we look down in verse 31 of Matthew 25. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So here is the division of the nations. These are everyone who is left alive after the great slaughter that we just saw. The nations are assembled before him, and he separates them into one of two categories, sheep or goats. What is he doing? He's judging. He's making a judgment on the nations. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So those on the right, the sheep, are deemed to be Righteous, they belong to the Son, they have placed their faith and trust in Him. What about those on the left? Verse 41, Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. They have been deemed to be unrighteous. They did not accept the free gift of salvation offered by Jesus Christ. They followed the Antichrist and His system. And Jesus sums it up then down in verse 46. He says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's the difference between the two groups. Two kinds of people. Of those who will be left on earth when Jesus returns in glory, they will either be the righteous sheep and ushered into eternal life, or they will be the unrighteous goats and ushered into eternal torment, eternal punishment. Those are the only two options. And this is what we're seeing in Daniel 7.12, when the nations are judged. Daniel said at the end of the verse, an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I would say that this has to do with the time period between Christ's return and when the kingdom is prepared and ready to be entered into. It's during this period of time that this judgment will take place. So some in the nation's will still be alive during that time. Not everybody on earth was assembled on the battlefield to fight um, against Christ. And we'll see this gap in time in more detail in some of our later studies in Daniel. So those are the two judgments um, that I'd say is definitely a part of this. There's one more judgment that I want to take a look at with you before we end for today, and that's the great white throne judgment. 
And I mentioned it earlier, so I want to be, com- uh, would be complete and at least take a look at it. And that's found in Revelation 20. So turn to Revelation 20 with me. As I said before, this judgment has some timing issues with the events in Daniel 7. So it's difficult to say that it's, a, it's definitely a part of what we see here. But it is a final piece to the judgment of the unredeemed world. And this is the scene that takes place after the thousand-year millennial kingdom that's on earth. And it takes place at the time when all of sin is abolished and when everything is on the verge of being made new. And it's at the time that this final judgment of the unrighteous is going to take place once and for all. So if you're in Revelation 20, look down at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat upon it, from those whose presence, I'm sorry, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, and great, uh, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And you note the similarities to what was seen in Daniel 7. There's a throne, there's the courtroom atmosphere, there's the opening of books. And all of the dead that had not yet been raised, all of those who are uh, left are now raised to stand before the throne of God. Now, believers have all been raised prior to this. That's something that's seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll see that as well when we get into Daniel chapter 12, down down the road. They, or I should say we, are already in glory at this time. All that is left to be dealt with here are the unrighteous. They stand before God. They are judged according to what they have done, according to their sins. And then the book of life is consulted. And if their name is not there, they are thrown into the lake of fire. It's important to note, their name will not be there. There are no surprises at this judgment. Anyone who is standing at this judgment does not have eternal life. The book of their deeds shows that they are guilty. The book of life shows that they do not belong with God for all eternity at his eternal presence. This is a tragic event, a tragic judgment, knowing that this time is coming for some, for most, actually. They will stand before God in this judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Immediately after he says that, he talks about how many will stand before him and declare that they belong to him. And he will tell them that he never knew them. Depart from me, he will tell them. What a sad reality that many someday will face. There are many that will find the broad gate, but few that will find the narrow gate. And I hope we all remember, or hope we all realize what that means. The vast majority of people are going to perish, are going to die in their sins for all eternity. So there are two questions that we have to ask in light of this. Where are we going to find ourselves on that day? When we stand before the Lord, is it going to be at a time when we will be ushered into his presence? Because we've lived a life of obedience to him as a result of having trusted in him as our Lord and Savior? having given our lives over to him completely and absolutely in order to bring glory and honor to him for all eternity? Or will we find ourselves asking, what do you mean my name's not there? How can it not be written in that book? 
That will be a sad, sad time for many people. And I pray it's not a sad time for any of us. The other question that we need to ask is this. Who do we know that is going to be at this final judgment someday? We all know somebody. We all know probably many people who as of right now are headed for this judgment. And since we know them, what are we doing about that? I know that many of us can faithfully say that we're doing what we can. We are presenting them with the gospel whenever we can, sometimes till we're blue in the face. And that's exactly what we should be doing. But I'm also sure that there are some of us here who can honestly say, I'm not doing enough about it or I'm not doing anything about it. And this is the time that we need to be sharing the truth of the gospel with those who are headed for judgment. Not for our own satisfaction, not even for our own well-being, but for the glory of God. For the glory of our Lord and Savior who gave himself up for them, for you and for me, so that he would be glorified for all eternity. Because bringing glory to God is what it's truly all about and what his plan is ultimately leading all things towards. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again and we just give you praise, Lord, for uh, your word. We thank you for the gift of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for what it means for us who have put our faith and trust in it. Lord, we just thank you that you are glorified by each and every person that, that accepts your gracious gift. And we just praise you, Lord, for the, uh, the glory that it brings to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be bold in our witness and our testimony towards others. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, just the dire need that they have to hear the gospel. And pray, Lord, that we would not shy away from that, but be bold in presenting it to them. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the time that you have given us on earth. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that as we look at these judgments and we see the things that are coming, we know, Lord, that they are not here yet. And while they are not here yet, we do have time to share the gospel with others. And we pray, Lord, that we would take advantage of that. I thank you, Lord, again for our study here. Thank you for our time uh, that we can spend in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the next hour as well as we worship once again. And I pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into your word one more time. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.